What I'm planning to do here, I started something during Vacation Bible School in which we were talking about the Word of God being a lamp unto our feet, and I got to the point that I was discussing Bible versions, and I ran out of time, and I had multiple people say they wanted me to come back and visit that. Uh, I'm not going to get that far today because we're already short on time, but in that particular lesson... I started with the subject, how does God communicate with man today? And we pointed out that God does that through words. He does do it through feelings that are subjective. God communicates to us through words. That has always been the way that God communicates with man. Then we went on to the next point, and that is, do we really have the Word of God today? And we talked about the fact that some people will argue that because we ha don't have original Greek and Hebrew that we have translations, that that's not really the Word of God. But we notice from Nehemiah chapter 8 that even though it was translated, it was still referred to as the Word of God. In the book of Luke, Jesus goes into the temple and He takes a scroll of Isaiah and He reads from it and He refers to it as the Word of God. The scroll that he appears to be reading from based on the layout appears to be the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the old Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus read from a translation and he referred to it as the Word of God. Then we started talking about the question of translations. Which translation, which version of the Bible should I use today? We spent a little bit of time talking about study Bibles, things that you should be aware of, things that you should avoid. Uh, I gave you some key passages that you can look at when you're uh, choosing a study Bible or a version of the Bible, and these will tell you something about the bias. Uh, I pointed out that when it comes to versions today, uh, which Bible to get, a study Bible, that the, the old Dixon Analytical is a great, great Bible. It's in the King James Version. It has the Old American Standard of 1901 in parentheses. The Thompson Chain Reference Bible is a good study Bible. It has very minimal denominational uh, biases in it. And then the Apologetics Press Study Bible, it's called Defending the Faith. This is, in my opinion, one of the best Bibles produced today. All of the notes in it are by faithful brethren. It is a thick, thick Bible. And so if you're going to carry it, it's a big Bible. But they put it out in hardback, which is like $40. And then they put it out in one of this, uh, you know, like fake bonded leather type. If you want something that's flexible and it's $20 or $30 more. And then they've got a nice, genuine, I think it's calf skin or goat skin or something, and it's like $80, but it's a really, really nice Bible. Uh, you can get this at apologeticspress.org, and uh, that is uh, the brethren from AP, but Dave Miller, Jeff Miller, Kyle Butt, uh, Eric Lyons, those guys. Then we started talking about translations of the Bible, and this is about where we ran out of time, and that is when a person is choosing a translation, there are certain things that he needs to be aware of. How do you pick a translation? Now, I ran through this very quickly the other day because of time, so I want to back up and mention three things that are important when choosing a translation. First is going to be the underlying text from which it is translated. 
Secondly is going to be the translator's theology. And then thirdly is going to be the translation philosophy. Now that's a lot of big words. What in the world am I talking about? First, the underlying text. Since we don't have Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, the original ones, the first thing that you have to establish is which set of manuscripts did they translate from? When you read different Bibles, you're going to see some omit certain verses, some include certain phrases that others do not include. Why is that? It has to do with the set of manuscripts they used and upon which they based their translation. Now, there are basically three different approaches when it comes to manuscripts. Now, you may not remember all this, but kind of gives you a background. First, there is what is called the critical text or the eclectic text. And what is meant by this is scholars compare ancient Greek manuscripts and they compare the writings of the early, what we call the church fathers, people who commented on the Bible, wrote commentaries, but they've got quotes from the scriptures. And they take all of these manuscripts and they put them together and they determine which are the best and what they think are additions. In the critical or eclectic approach, two manuscripts might be chosen over a thousand. For instance, they would say, we've got these two manuscripts and they are way old. They're the oldest manuscripts we have. We've got a thousand that say something different, but they're 800 years older. And so we're going to go, or 800 years younger, so we're going to go back to the older. We think two older is better than 800 younger. And so they kind of pick and choose. Secondly, there is approach that is called the received text. And that is in Latin, the Textus Receptus. That is what the King James is based on, the Textus Receptus. And in the 1500s, Erasmus had a group of texts that was basically the latest and greatest that they had at that time. And that is what he based the King James on. And a lot of our Bibles since then have been based on that. And then the third approach is what is called the majority text. The majority text looks at all the Greek manuscripts, and we've got somewhere around 5,800 Greek manuscripts. And what it does is it says, we're going to go with what the majority of them say. The Textus Receptus and the majority text are very similar to each other. Sometimes people use those two terms interchangeably, uh, but they're not really interchangeable. There, there's some slight differences there. So that's the first thing that you need to know, and that is the underlying text that they use. Secondly is the translator's theology. That is, the people who translated this version of the Bible, do they really believe that it's the Word of God, or are they just translators? Now that's important because theoretically a scholar could translate something whether he believes it's the Word of God or not. You can have a guy, a, a guy who knows Hebrew and you could hand him a Bible and say, translate this, and, and he could translate it. But if he doesn't respect the Word of God, then you might see that bleed through in his translation. The translators of the King James Version had a very high regard for the divine origin of the Bible. In contrast to that, some of the versions in recent years have been translated by very liberal theologians. I understand that there were nine members of the translation 
committee that did the revised standard version, and they were all classified as the liberal wing of scholarship. Well, that's going to affect your thinking. In fact, one of the problems with uh, the revised standard is in uh, Isaiah uh, 7.14 when the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall bring forth a child. They didn't translate it as virgin, the word Alma. They didn't translate it as virgin. They translated it as young woman. Why did they do that? has to do with their thinking. Very, very liberal scholarship. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. And so that bled through in their translation. So the underlying text is one factor. Number two, what about the philosophers or the translator's philosophy? Sometimes you can tell this right in the preface to the book because the translators will write some things. You can go and read that. That will help you. Now, the thing that is most important and where what I started covering the other day is the actual translation approach, the translation philosophy. There are two basic translation philosophies. One is called formal equivalence. The other is dynamic equivalence. Formal means that we are going to just word for word translate it. Dynamic means we're going to read it and we're going to give you the meaning. We're going to give you the thought. So formal equivalence seeks to be as much word for word as possible. It's very, very literal. This is the approach that was taken with the King James Version, the ESV, the English Revised Version, the Old American Standard of 1901. In fact, I have read that the English, uh, the uh, ESV and the ASV of 1901 are some of the most meticulously accurate word-for-word -word translations that we have in the English language. Now, the second approach, dynamic equivalence, attempts to convey the meaning of the text rather than a word-for-word -word translation. Sometimes people call dynamic equivalence thought equivalence. And so this approach might reword expressions and customs that we're not familiar with today. And so rather than word-for-word -word translate a custom, they'll try to explain it to you. For instance, in Psalm 23 and verse 5, the translation says in the King James, anointed my head with oil. Word for word, that's what it says. But what does that mean to us today? <clears throat> if I said, he anointed my head with oil, you don't understand the custom behind that. And so, a thought for thought or dynamic equivalence would translate that as, he welcomed me as an honored guest. Now you see, somebody would say, well, that's better because that gives me the idea. But you see the problem? Now it's up to that person to translate the custom and tell you what they think it means, and you end up getting somewhat of a commentary. You get their opinion into this rather than a word-for-word -word translation. The NIV leans more toward the thought-for-thought -thought or the dynamic equivalence than it does the, uh, the literal translation. Now, I've got some charts up here that will give you some ideas. Uh, does this have a laser on it? Yeah, here we go. On this end, we've got word-for-word -word translations. Then we've got thought-for-thought -thought or dynamic equivalence. And then over here we have what is called a paraphrase. The paraphrase, I don't even count those as versions. A paraphrase means they just read it and put it in their own words. It's, it's really not a translation of the Bible. 
So a paraphrase is going to be on the far end. It's, it's really, really bad. Um, the message, if you're familiar with one called the message, uh, don't get that garbage. That's a pathetic uh, work. The Living Bible, in fact, the Living Bible, uh, if you look at the cover, says the Living Bible paraphrase. That is, this is not a translation. This is just our own words. Uh, then you've got the contemporary English version. You've got the Good News uh, translation, uh, the New International Readers version, uh, the New Living translations. All of these I would avoid like the plague. Then you've got the thought for thought or the dynamic equivalence. And there's an argument from people. Is it better word for word, thought for thought, thought for thought? I prefer the word for word, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. The thought for thought, you can see how they've ranked these, and you can see, um, let's see here, here's the NIV, right in the middle of the thought for thought, uh, and you can see some of these that fall into uh, this category, uh, the New Century Version, uh, today's New International Version, uh, the New International, the New Jerusalem Bible, that's a Catholic translation, the New American Bible, uh, the Christian Standard, and then you've got those that are more word for word. If you see on the far end, you see an interlinear. An interlinear version is where it is literally word for word. A, an interlinear version is hard to read because if you take something and you go word for word in the most literal sense, it just doesn't flow at all. And so the balance is to get the meaning, put it in our language, keep it as close to word for word as possible. <clears throat> so on the word for word side, you've got the interlinear, you've got the, um, the New American Standard, you've got the Amplified, the ESV, the English Standard, you've got the King James Version, the New King James Version. So these are the ones that I lean toward and recommend that people get because they are going to be closer to what God said. Now, let's see, here's some, some other charts, some other people's uh, estimation of this. For word, for word, you've got the New American Standard, King James, New King James, ESV, thought for thought, you come over here, you've got the NIV, then you've got the paraphrases, the message, contemporary English, and the Living Bible. And then here's even another breakdown. Here you've got the more, they call it literal, formal, dynamic, paraphrase, and expanded. So in literal, you've got the YLT. That stands for Young's Literal Translation. That's, uh, that's going to be um, interlinear. And then for formal, this is going to be probably your most easy to read, but closest to word for word. You've got the New King James, the ESV, the uh, KJV. And then you come over here and you've got your dynamic and your paraphrases again. And see, you've got the, they've classified the NIV in between a paraphrase and a dynamic. Most would put it over here in the dynamic, but this gives you some different people's thoughts. Now, let me give you some examples when we talk about word for word or dynamic, uh, I mean a literal versus thought for thought, which is dynamic. Here we've got to Matthew 10.22, a literal translation, the ESV, says, for my name's sake. Literally, for my name's sake. The NIV says, because of me. 
You see how something gets changed a little bit? Luke 14, or Luke 1 and verse 42 literally says, the fruit of your womb. Think about what that means. Fruit means the product of. The womb, of course, is where a baby grows. The product that comes from the womb. In the NIV, it says the child you will bear. So they're trying to give the idea the fruit of the womb, the product that comes from the womb is a baby. So that's how they've changed it. Ephesians 5.16 literally says in the New King James, redeeming the time. Literally, it means buying back the time. The NIV says making the most of every opportunity. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, the New King James literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world does that mean? Has anybody used that phrase today? We, it's time for uh, services. Y'all all need to gird up the loins of your mind. Well, we don't talk that way. So the NIV says, prepare your minds for action. I would rather have the word for word and then explain what it means. First John chapter 1 and verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. Literally, the NIV says we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Now, oftentimes... People say, well, I, I like the NIV. It reads easier. It's easier for me to understand. But you're depending on the fact that these people translated it right. Now, what is wrong with that? The NIV has a strong denominational bias. So when they are translating these, that bleeds through in their bias. Why does this even matter? Brethren, it matters because the Greek and the Hebrew text was inspired by God. Not just every thought, but every single word. Every grammatical peculiarity was inspired by God. So when you go to thought for thought, uh, thought for thought, you lose some of those grammatical peculiarities. You, you, you lose the word for word that God inspired. Does that matter? In Matthew 22 and verse 32, Jesus made an argument to the Pharisees based on the verb tense. What happens if you go thought for thought and you, you lose that verb tense? You lose the argument that Jesus made. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul made an argument based on the fact that the word seed is singular. What if you change the word? What if you go thought for thought and you don't use a singular word? So the goal of the translator ought to be to stay as close to the original as he can so as not to lose the subtle messages of tense and voice and mood, etc. Now somebody might ask, Don, how in the world are we supposed to figure all this stuff out when looking for a good translation? Frequently, you can find some of this stuff in the preface and you can search a lot of this on the internet, I think if you'll get a good, reliable word-for-word -word translation, then you're going to be in uh, good shape. I recommend to people the New King James Bible. It is more readable, but it's still, it's all, all that it is, is really is a revision of the King James. Now, the King James has had numerous revisions over the years, but they keep calling it the King James. But you could call it the New King James, the Newer King James, the Newest King James. I mean, you could go that route. The New King James is just another revision of the King James. It is based on the uh, Textus Receptus, and they've gone through and they've taken the goeth, saith, doeth. They've taken the ETH off and put it 
into goes, says, does. That's largely what they've done, and then they've taken archaic words and they've updated them. I like it because when it comes to doctrine, it is very, very accurate. I also really like the ESV because it is very, very uh, straightforward. It's easier to read. It speaks more the way that we do. But there's a few things you got to note because they did not do a good job translating a few things. So what time does class go till? 11. Okay, i got 10 more minutes. All right. When it comes to picking a translation, there are over 50 modern complete translations of the Bible in English. It would be impossible for me to talk about 50. So I just want to make a few observations about a few random ones. A few years ago, there was one put out called the Reader's Digest Bible. What do you think they did with that? What do you think the Reader's Digest Bible is? It's a very condensed version of the Bible. In fact, they cut the Old Testament by 55% and they cut the New Testament by 25%. What is very uh, ironic is they cut out Revelation 22, 18 through 20, which says, do not add to or take away from the Word of God. So that's kind of interesting. In 2005, there was a translation or version put out called the Feminist Bible. And they went through and tried to remove masculine references to God, and they tried to feminize the Bible. In 2012, 13 years ago, there was a Bible put out called the Queen James Bible. And in that version, they altered all the, verse, all the verses that mention homosexuality, and they tried to sanitize it for homosexuals. And so anything that was appeared to be negative about homosexuality, they said that was a mistranslation, and so they tried to uh, avoid that. Those are some of the outrageous versions. Don't get those kind of versions. Secondly, I would say avoid dynamic equivalences and paraphrases. Don't get a paraphrase. If you've got a paraphrase, just throw it in the, in the garbage. They are worthless. That would include the Living Bible Paraphrase, which was put out in the, the 70s, uh, the Good News Bible, uh, 1976, the Contemporary English Bible came out in 1995, the one called God's Word came out in 95, the New Living Translation, uh, the Message is a more recent uh, paraphrase. Uh, stay away from those. When it comes to the dynamic equivalent, I'm going to pick on this one a little bit because the New International Version is the, let's see, yeah, here it is. The New International Version is, I looked it up last week, it is the number one best-selling English Bible in 2023. So because of that, I'm going to single this one out. Incidentally, the second best-selling English Bible, anybody want to take a guess? Nope. Second is the ESV. Number one is the NIV. Number two is the ESV. And I also looked up the King James because the King James was the best-selling Bible for years and years and years. It is now number five. And the New King James is number six. I'm also singling out the NIV, not only because it's number one, but because it is not a good translation. It is not a word-for-word -word translation. Um, depending on who you ask, it either falls in the middle or it's a thought-for-thought 
philosophy. Secondly, not only is it a good, not a good translation, it is very doctrinally biased. Now, rather than just say that, I want to give you some examples. I put some of these up here on the board. Number one, it teaches the idea of inherited sin. Now, for comparison's sake, I've got the old American standard of 1901, which a lot of brethren think is the most accurate Bible ever produced, but they're hard to find anymore. No one produces the old American standard of 1901, but I think it's a good translation. In Psalm 51.5, the old American standard, very, very literal says, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What does that mean? I was brought forth in iniquity. This, of course, could refer to the sin that brought about his birth. In sin, my mother did conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. That is, my mother's sin, which caused her to be pregnant, caused me to be born. It could mean that he was brought forth into a world of sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity into a world filled with sin. It could mean either one of those things. But look how the NIV translates it. Surely I was sinful at birth. I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's very different, isn't it? That doesn't leave room for either of the other two interpretations. It puts forth the Calvinistic idea that man inherits sin from Adam. And this is the problem, strong Calvinism in the NIV. Again, it teaches inherited sin, and that is that man has a sinful nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, watch that for your kids. It's the number one most selling, uh, popular selling Bible, so got to keep your eyes out for this. Uh, number two, the NIV teaches a sinful nature. Why do you have a sinful nature? Because you're born in sin. They say the Bible does not teach that we are born in sin. Again, Romans 7 and verse 18 and the Old American Standard says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good. It's a reference to the fact that he's contrasting living in the Spirit, following God, as opposed to living in the flesh, following your fleshly desires. If I'm following the fleshly desires, that's not good. Listen to the NIV. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I have heard some people argue man has a sinful nature. And I've said the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. And they'll say, yes, it does. Ephesians 2, the text for this morning in the sermon, as a matter of fact, Romans 7 and verse 18, they'll say, see, it says sinful nature. This is pure Calvinism. The NIV uses the phrase sinful nature 46 times. I searched 20 different other translations and what I found is, it's virtually unknown in any other translation. They've taken the word sarks, which is the word for flesh. And any time they see the word flesh, they translate it as sinful nature. It simply means flesh. It's the desires of my flesh. I might have physical lust. Well, that's not a sinful nature, but they would translate it as sinful nature. Uh, thirdly, it teaches premillennialism. Premillennialism, very, very popular amongst those who hold to Calvinism. And 
do, do, do you know what I mean when I say Calvinism? John Calvin came up with the idea that is summarized in TULIP, total hereditary depravity. We were born depraved because we inherited it from Adam. Unlimited, um, or let's see, uh, what is uh, the U? Um, what is it, Josh, you remember? Oh, unconditional election. Unconditional election, that is, you're either saved or you're not, and there is nothing you can do about it. God picks you to be saved or lost. Limited atonement, limited atonement means if you're one of the saved, He has atonement for you. If you're not, you're lost. I is irresistible grace. If you're one of the saved, you can't resist it. And then P is perseverance of the saints. If you're one of the saved, you're going to be saved. You will persevere to the end. You can't fall from grace. It's commonly called once saved, always saved. Those beliefs are virtually unknown in Bible history until the 1500s. That's when you see them start popping up in the Reformation movement. Okay, here's the next one, and that is it teaches premillennialism. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 teaches that on the last day, the earth is going to be burned up. The American Standard says the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There, this work, earth is going to be gone. Listen to the NIV. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Why would they say laid bare? Because premillennialism teaches that there's going to be a heaven on this earth. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years on this earth. You know what? There is a big difference and burned up and gone and laid bare. Why do they translate it that way? Because of premillennialism. Revelation 20 and verse 4, the old American standard says about the Christian martyrs, that is people who die and they go to paradise, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That means a perfect period of time. If you're a martyr, you died faithfully, you go and live and reign with the Lord. The NIV says they came to life and they, re they reigned with Christ a thousand years. Why would they say that? Because they believe that there's going to be the rapture, they're going to come back to this earth, they're going to be resurrected, and they're going to reign for a thousand years. That's not what the text says. That is the thought-for-thought thought translation that has gotten in there. So which, which version should we use? I recommend the Old King James, the New King James, or the ESV. Now, let me say this about the ESV very quickly because I know that I only have about a minute. The ESV reads very nicely. Let me give you some examples. Job 36, 33, the King James says, The noise thereof showeth concerning it, the cattle also concerning the vapor. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Now, the ESV, its crashing declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. Makes a lot better sense, doesn't it? It reads, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 12, you are straightened in your own bowels. Somebody want to tell me what that means? If someone said that phrase to you, what would you think? We need to get you to the restroom because that doesn't sound good. That doesn't translate to us. But you are restricted in your own affections. The ESV has put the word every back in uh, the collection the word kata. For whatever reason, the King James and the ASV have omitted that. But there are some weaknesses. 
of the ESV. They've done away with italics. The old King James, if they added a word to make it smoothly, they put it in italics so you know it's not in the original. With the ESV, you don't know. That's a biggie. Matthew 19.9, they translate pornea. Instead of fornication, they translated it as sexual immorality. I don't like that. If a person looks at pornography, that's sexual immorality, but that's not fornication. It's not grounds for divorce. John 3.16, they've translated monogenes as only instead of only begotten son. That's a big deal to me. Philippians 2 and verse 6 translates a present participle as past tense to say that when Jesus was on this earth, He was in the form of God, leaving the impression that when He was on this earth, He wasn't deity anymore. That's a big deal. 1 Corinthians 11 uses the word husband and wife when the context is actually man and woman. Matthew 16, 18 says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's the word Hades. Jesus means that uh, His death is not going to prevent His kingdom. Why they translated it this way, I don't know. Every other time they saw the word Hades, they translated it as Hades. But here they translated it as hell. Romans 10 and verse 10, when you get to Romans 10, it's a big deal. They've altered the text by changing two nouns, righteousness and salvation, into two verbs. And so what you get when you get into Romans chapter 10 is a big deal because they have a person being justified at the point of faith. Faith only. A man is saved when he has faith. He is saved when he commit or when he has his confession. Whereas the King James says that he confesses unto righteousness. He believes unto righteousness. That is when he believes, it moves him in the direction of righteousness. He confesses and it moves him into the direction. In fact, the way the ESV is written, you've got a contradiction. He's saved at the point that he believes but then he's saved again at the point when he confesses. Both of those can't be true. Okay, I'm over time by a little bit. Uh, I'll wrap this up. If you've got any questions, let me know. Thanks for your attention. Appreciate it.